I want to tell you a story. It's a story about six people who died violently in Germany in 1922. It's a story about an investigation that went on for decades, but never identified the perpetrator. It's a story that has become a legend. I want you to come with me into history, into the long, cold dark. This is Long Cold Dark, the story of the murders at Hinterkaifeck in 1922. This episode contains information about murder, sexual violence, and violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. On April 4th, 1922, neighbors of the Gruber family noticed a pervasive silence at the Hinterkaifeck farmstead. Lorenz Schlittenbauer, Michael Pohl, and Jacob Siegel entered the Hinterkaifeck barn, where they discovered the bodies of Andreas and Cecilia Gruber, their daughter, Victoria Gabriel, and her daughter, Celie. Upon gaining entry to the house, they found the bodies of Victoria's toddler son, Joseph, and the family's maid, Maria Baumgartner. All six had been killed with blows to the head by some heavy object, likely a farm tool. The livestock in the barn seemed to have been cared for, and other clues suggested that the killer or killers may have spent several days living in the farmhouse before and after the murders. The case was plagued with rumors of hauntings, break-ins, and mysterious goings-on at the rural Bavarian farmstead. In the century since the murders, this case has taken on the trappings of urban legend, and the truth, along with much of the case documentation, has been lost. The investigation was stalled by the outbreak of World War II, and was eventually picked back up again in the 1950s. Many of the original files, and the skulls of the victims, were destroyed in Allied bombings. No photograph exists of Andreas Gruber or any member of his immediate family. Andreas' early life is obscure. We know that he was born in 1858. He was the oldest of three sons. His parents passed their farm on to their second-born, Michael, in 1893. Andreas was described as a tall man, standing at about six foot, and strong. He had to be, to perform the physical labor that a 19th century farm demanded. He came to Hinterkaifeck as a laborer sometime before 1885. He went to work for Joseph and Cecilia Sanhuter Assam. In May of 1885, Joseph Assam died. His widow, Cecilia, must have seen something in Andreas. She was 36, Andreas was 27. A woman alone with children would be hard pressed to run a farm without help. Cecilia had been born in November of 1849 to Martin and Monica Winter Sanhuter. Her father was a carpenter. Beyond that, almost nothing is known about Cecilia's life before she came to Hinterkaifeck. She became half-owner of the farm on her marriage to Joseph Assam, and of course inherited his share when he died. 
Cecilia had had four children with Joseph. Two survived to adulthood. The oldest, also called Cecilia, was six, and the youngest, Martin, was two when Joseph died. Cecilia and Andreas married on April 14, 1886, just about a year after Joseph's death. For Andreas, the marriage would have been hugely advantageous. The widow Assam held a large farm with stock and machinery. Overnight, he was transformed from laborer to landowner. Andreas and Cecilia had three children together. Victoria was born in 1887, Sophie was born in 1889, and she died in 1891. They also had an unnamed daughter who only lived a few hours after birth. Later, a neighbor claimed that there were other children born to Andreas and Cecilia, but that they died due to neglect, abuse, and starvation. He said, the children probably died because they were not cared for adequately. Myself and my father had often seen the little children trapped in the cellar for days, and when you passed, you could hear the children crying. If this is true, no one local attempted to intervene, and no official records of any other children exist. Only three children are recorded as born to Cecilia and Andreas. And of course, two of Cecilia's four children from her first marriage died at birth or shortly after. These numbers aren't surprising, by the way. This is normal for the time period. From 1880 through 1920, somewhere between 32 and 38% of children worldwide died before their first birthday. This mortality rate can be attributed to childhood diseases like measles, which had no vaccine until 1963. Lots of children died in accidents too. Farm life was then, and remains now, especially dangerous. Machinery and animals still kill farmers and farm laborers regularly. In any case, Victoria was the only one of Cecilia and Andreas's children to survive to adulthood. Her half-sister, Cecilia Assam, lived on the farm until her marriage in 1902. Victoria's half-brother, Martin, left the farm in 1915, when he was drafted for military service in World War I. He died in combat in France in 1916. Hinterkaifeck was isolated from its neighbors by distance and by landscape. The farm was roughly half a mile from the nearest neighbor. It was bordered on all sides by fields and thick woods, which provided visual privacy and dampened sound. The Gruber family were separated from the larger community by physical barriers, but also by their own habits. Physically, Hinterkaifeck was remote. Psychologically, it was an island. A century after the murders, it can be difficult to separate rumor from fact. Some neighbors and locals had high opinions of the elder Grubers, but those seemed to be in the minority. Most records indicate that Andreas was complicated and difficult. He was occasionally helpful to people, and he was a skilled craftsman, but he was also described as stingy, private, and rude to his employees. Because of his reputation for stinginess, Rumors that he was hoarding cash circulated in the neighborhood. As far as I know, said one neighbor, the Gruber family was well off. I reckon they had about 100,000 marks in cash. Beyond what's available in court documents, case files, and the few surviving statements of neighbors, almost nothing is known about Andreas Gruber's personality. We have to extrapolate from what we know about his behavior. On the farm, 
behind closed doors. He was master and tyrant. His family life was fraught with tension, cruelty, and violence. In 1984, one of Seeley's classmates, Sophie Fuchs, recalled that Andreas was, quote, terribly mean to his wife. The woman, Cecilia Gruber, she really had a lot to go through. Considering what we do know about Andreas' behavior, Sophie's assessment is tragically understated. Andreas was, in fact, a monster. Sometime around 1903, when Victoria was 16, Andreas began sexually abusing her. Aside from court records documenting Andreas' repeated arrests for the crime of incest and various recorded statements by neighbors, an eyewitness account survives. Crescent's Rager was a maid working at Hinter Kaifek in 1921. She stated that she had caught Andreas in the act of assaulting Victoria in the barn. Victoria later spoke to Rager about the incident, stating that if she had known Rager was coming into the barn, she never would have submitted. Decades after the murders, another neighbor, Andreas Schweiger, attempted to downplay the abuse at Hinterkaifeck. He claimed that Cecilia was already pregnant when she married Andreas, meaning that Victoria wasn't Andreas' biological daughter. In a 1980 interview with Chief Detective Inspector Cole, Schweiger repeatedly referred to Victoria as Andreas' stepdaughter. Kolb pressed Schweiger on the issue. Schweiger said, I don't know for sure, and, and neither does anyone else. Maybe she was adopted, or, or how Cecilia went about it. It could still have been from the first husband. Cecilia could have already been pregnant. Just like nowadays, when young women know they're pregnant, they can quickly get another husband. And that could have been the case back then. There is nothing to support this idea. Joseph Assam died in 1885. Cecilia and Andreas married in 1886. Victoria was born in February of 1887, 11 months after their wedding. Schweiger's reliability as a witness has also been called into question. In 1984, Chief Detective Inspector Conrad mueller tuman attempted to interview Schweiger again. He told the following story. When I arrived in Groburn, I asked a farmer about Andreas Schweiger's farm. The man explained, you should have come earlier. We buried him two days ago. So I asked the farmer's wife if she knew someone who could explain to me the exact location of the Hinterkaifeck farm. She told me that Schweiger always exaggerated and not always told the pure truth. So it was better to go to Sophie Fuchs, who knows the story best. Although the unnamed farmer's wife made this statement to mueller tuman more than half a century after the murders, her assessment of Schweiger's reputation for embellishment is sharp. Whether this stemmed from a good-faith effort to help find the truth, or the neighborly animosity that can fester over decades and generations in small communities, is unknown. What is known is that Schweiger gave some bizarre statements to investigators, statements which did not align with the known facts, and his comments about the case should be read through that lens. At any rate, details of Andreas' abuse of Victoria, like most other details about their lives, are vague. From the little information that survives, Andreas' treatment of Victoria appears to have been coercive, manipulative, and violent. 
We know that the abuse was common knowledge in the neighborhood. The Gruber's immediate neighbor, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, told police later that Victoria felt compelled to submit to Andrea's demands. When Victoria became pregnant in 1918, Andreas reportedly threatened to kill her if he discovered that the father of her child was anyone but himself. According to at least one other witness, Andreas isolated Victoria from other people as much as he could. He once went as far as to lock her in a closet when a potential suitor came to see her at Hinterkaifeck. The effects of this abuse wouldn't have been exclusive to Victoria. It would have affected the entire family. We know from neighbors that the Gruber's living situation was far from peaceful, and that they were perceived as strange, isolated, and dysfunctional in the wider community. You have to imagine the atmosphere of tension and resentment in the home. None of the family have left letters or diaries, but neighbors and friends reported that there was no peace at Hinterkaifeck. One witness, who is only referred to in the records as grandmother, told investigators that her own mother, quote, saw it coming, and that it had to end like this, meaning murder, in Hinterkaifeck. After the discovery of the murders, local opinion was that the Gruber family had finally perished in an implosive murder-suicide. The prevailing attitude was that there was only one inevitable outcome for a family living under the tyranny of a man who felt entitled to disregard all accepted codes of social or familial behavior. Violent death at the hands of their own. So this is the terrifying environment where Victoria Gruber grew into adulthood. There's no record of her ever living anywhere else. She spent her whole life in her parents' house, working to make their farm successful. Despite her father's deliberate isolation tactics, Victoria did manage to build a sort of social life outside the farm. She was notable as being the first woman to sing in the local church choir. One former Hinterkaifeck employee, Johann Freundel, described working with Victoria during a house renovation. Quote, At that time, I was employed as a handyman. The daughter of Victoria carried mortar and stones with me, just like a man. She must be described as a strong and hard-working woman. How much of this is true and how much can be attributed to the then-current ideals of German femininity, which prized hard work and domestic orderliness above all else, well, it's impossible to know that now. But taken within the context of the time and place, Freundel's description is high praise. That Victoria worked just like a man placed her firmly within cultural ideals of German womanhood. Of course, Freundel's statement came after the murders. It may be colored by a desire to speak well of the dead. Victoria's social standing and local perception of her was far more complicated. Victoria knew that she was an object of gossip in the area, but she seemed to be resigned to her status. Sophie Fuchs remembered that Victoria sometimes came in to see the landlord in Groburn. The landlord would ask her what was going on because she looked so down. And Victoria would say, well, you know what he always does to me. This comment indicates that Victoria knew that Andreas' abuse was common knowledge, that it was a subject of local conversation, 
And it suggests a resignation to the fact that while everyone knew what Andreas was doing, no one was going to intervene to stop him. Victoria's desperation was known, it was discussed, and it was ignored. Still, Victoria didn't respond to the social stress by withdrawing further into isolation, as you might expect. This might suggest some personality traits that are otherwise obscured by time and lack of documentation. In the face of social stressors that must have been the cause of immense shame and anxiety, Victoria continued to engage with the world through the church and through her business dealings. She was, after all, the property manager of Hinterkaifeck, a farm as a business, and Victoria appears to have run her as well. She needed to deal with suppliers and marketers, she needed to make financial decisions, and especially in a small community, she needed to establish a reputation for honest business practices in order to make her farm a success. Victoria's engagement in the church choir may also provide some insight into her personality. She was the first woman member of the choir, so of course that set her apart. Her singing must have been lovely, and the pursuit of her place in the choir may testify to her will and determination. That she pursued an art form tells us that she managed to find something worthwhile in the world, despite her horrifying upbringing. Maybe that combination of art and faith took her out of herself, offering what must have been a badly needed escape from her daily reality. None of this suggests that Victoria was superhuman or had reserves of fortitude, unusual or unavailable to others, just that she was a complex and whole person, about whom we know very little. We have to wonder why Victoria stayed at Hinterkaifeck or at least didn't demand that Andreas, who by 1922 had no legal claim to the property, get out. There's several possibilities. Maybe Victoria had simply resigned herself to waiting for Andreas to die and leave her in peace. Maybe evicting him would also mean evicting Cecilia, and we don't know how Victoria felt about Cecilia. Maybe Victoria's evidently strong Catholic faith supported her in her suffering. Maybe she was simply too afraid to leave, as so many abused women still are. In any case, taking her abnormal and dysfunctional upbringing into account, it's disingenuous to read Victoria's behavior in adulthood through a normal or functional lens. We have the benefit of being removed in time, distance, and circumstance. We don't know how Victoria related to her parents or to any other family member. Very little else is known of Victoria's life. Who were her friends? Was there anyone she could confide in? She didn't leave a journal. It's not that there's a void in the records. It's that the records of Victoria's life only exist at moments of change, stress, and pain. We know when she was born. We know when she married. We know when she was widowed. We know when she gave birth. We know when she was imprisoned for her father's crimes. And we know when she was murdered. Beyond that, Victoria is a mystery. Because of this lack of information, we do not know how Victoria met her husband, Carl Gabriel Jr. 
We know he was the son of a small-hold farmer in nearby Log. The only surviving photo of Carl as an adult, in his army uniform, shows him as a slender man with prominent cheekbones, deep-set eyes, and a dark, upturned mustache. He was handsome in a vulpine way. Carl was 26, a year younger than Victoria, when they got married on April 3, 1914. In March of 1914, a month before the wedding, Andreas transferred ownership of Hinterkaifeck to Victoria. Her half-brother, Martin, was given some money to compensate him for the loss of his birthright. The farm, the economic support of the entire Gruber family, and the site of Victoria's abuse and degradation was her wedding gift. The circumstances of Victoria and Carl's brief married life are known only through the statements of neighbors. However much Victoria and Carl may have tried to live happily, relations between the newlyweds were strained at best. Sometime between April and August of 1914, Carl Gabriel left Hinterkaifeck and went back to his parents' farm in Log. The cause of his move so shortly after the marriage? It's unknown. Lorenz Schlittenbauer later claimed that Carl was unhappy with the way the elder Grubers treated him. Gabriel himself often complained to me that he was doing badly, and the old people were so stingy that there wasn't even anything to eat at lunchtime. This tracks with others' assessments of the Gruber family's behavior. They were known to be stingy versus simply thrifty, and no one expressed any surprise that Carl wasn't happy in their home. Jacob Siegel speculated that Carl left because Andreas refused to give up access to Victoria's body. Based on what we already know about Andreas, a dispute over Victoria seems likely. Whatever the reason, it must have been severe enough that Carl would risk the possibility of divorce and losing his potential rights to the property at Hinterkaifeck. The feelings of Carl's family on his marriage and domestic issues would not be made clear until decades later. We know that Victoria was pregnant when Carl left, although whether she or anyone in the family knew it at the time is, of course, impossible to say. It's also impossible to determine the biological father of the child, given the circumstances of Victoria's home life, the father is equally likely to have been Carl or Andreas. Cecilia Jr., known as Celie, was born in January of 1915. Carl never met her. He was drafted into the military at the outbreak of World War I. He died in France after only four days of active service while attempting to clear an enemy trench. After Carl's death, Andreas' sexual demands on Victoria only escalated. It wasn't long after this that someone reported Andreas to the local authorities. Andreas and Victoria were both arrested on incest charges. They were both convicted. On May 22nd of 1915, Andreas was sentenced to a year in prison. Victoria was sentenced to a month. Who reported them? The surviving records don't reveal the name of their accuser. More importantly, what sort of justice system allowed Victoria to be imprisoned for her father's crime? 
we know that the year-long prison sentence had no reforming effect on Andreas Gruber. He returned to his abusive habits after his release. While she was temporarily freed from Andreas' control, Victoria developed a reputation for being generally sexually promiscuous. Lorenz Schlittenbauer recalled several incidents in which Victoria pursued him. Eventually, after the death of Schlittenbauer's first wife, they became lovers, and they even planned to get married. At some point in 1918, during the affair with Schlittenbauer and after Andreas' release from prison, Victoria discovered that she was again pregnant. The child's paternity was a vexed issue between Schlittenbauer, Victoria, and Andreas. Schlittenbauer confronted Andreas about Victoria's pregnancy, and during the conversation, Schlittenbauer threatened to report Andreas to the police. Andreas replied that he didn't care, and then he chased Schlittenbauer off the property with a scythe. The paternity issue continued to cause tension between the neighbors. Somewhere along the line, money changed hands. Evidently, Victoria paid Schlittenbauer to acknowledge paternity of her unborn child. He later claimed to have given the money back and that he only agreed to the deal in the first place because he believed there was still a chance that he and Victoria might get married. The affidavit of paternity, which Schlittenbauer and Victoria signed in order to complete the transaction, does not survive. Schlittenbauer's papers were lost in a house fire in 1926. However, as the impossibility of marriage became obvious, Schlittenbauer became so angry that he followed through on his earlier threat to report Andreas to the police. Andreas was again arrested for incest, and while he was in jail, Victoria gave birth to a son. She named him Joseph. Joseph's birth was a huge turning point. Victoria approached Schlittenbauer and apparently begged him to retract his statement against Andreas. Schlittenbauer told investigators later, a few weeks after the child was born, Victoria Gabriel came to me and cried terribly, and I let myself be softened, and I revoked my statement. Schlittenbauer retracted his police report, and his claim of paternity, and the issue of marriage was dropped forever. He married another woman in 1921. Victoria never remarried. On Joseph's birth record, Victoria is listed as his mother, and Andreas Gruber is listed as his guardian. Other details of the Gruber's lives between 1918 and 1922 are extremely sketchy. During this time, Germany was in a near constant state of crisis and upheaval, but the Gruber family survived. No records of their agricultural work exist. We don't know if the Grubers, like many German farmers, were forced to survive on animal fodder or slaughter their own stock during the war. We do know from an inventory of the farm conducted after the murders that they were well supplied in 1922. The investigators listed several tons of potatoes, grains, and hay, as well as smoked meat, as part of the estate. The Grubers were also in possession of two oxen, two bulls, four cows, three yearling cattle, five calves, two piglets, and about 25 chickens. In addition to the land and livestock, the Grubers were financially secure enough to hire farm laborers and domestic staff. In early 1922, 
Victoria let it be known that the family were in need of a housemaid. Next time on Long Cold Dark, we'll meet Maria Baumgartner and some of the folks who knew the Gruber family. I'm C.S. Frank. Thanks for listening.